Have you ever had this experience? Dan, is that, is that Dan over there? And you're like, I'm Fred. <laughs> I don't know who you're talking to, but <clears throat> someone thinks they recognize you as one of their friends. And at that moment, you realize that you have a lookalike. You have a doppelganger somewhere out there. I pray that you don't run into those people. It's weird to see yourself walking around and I'm just messing. No, but in our text today, we come again across this thing that we've seen intentionally in Luke a number of times. And I respectfully say this, but Moses is a, a doppelganger, as it were, to Jesus. He's supposed to picture for us something that comes later. There is a redemption that is had in Israel. But that only prepared the people to receive a greater redemption in Christ Jesus. And so today, what I want to do because of this thing that continues to occur is we're going to go on an excursus. I I don't know if you've heard that word. An excursus is usually um, in an appendix in a book. It's a further detailed discussion about something Uh, that's made in the book that they can't cover or it's not part of their main argument. And so what I want to do here is to go on an excursus about this Moses type, if you will. There there is a type of Christ here that is full. And and, in fact, we see it in our very psalm text today. These things point to the greater reality of Jesus. And what I want to do is spend... A particular amount of time on Christ as king, that part of the office, because I think it's misapprehended much in our day, and hopefully I can illuminate it for us. And so we're going to work through three verses, but we're going to do it backwards because you'll see what is said and how you can recognize type language in the scripture. So look with me as we begin in verse 37. It begins, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the second time this text in Deuteronomy 18.15 is quoted. Previously, you could find it if you want to go back in chapter 3.22, Peter preaches And in that sermon, he uses it in the exact same way. Stephen and him, maybe this is one of the things that was learned on the road to Emmaus. Who knows? But this is the way in which consistently we've seen the apostles use this text of Scripture to show that Jesus is that prophet. So Jesus is that prophet like Moses. He fits into this type. So as we think about it, we hear Moses, if we're putting ourselves back in Deuteronomy there, preparing the people to receive a prophet like me. Um, A prophet is an office to which somebody's appointed to by God. Thus, the people are not looking for someone with a specific skin color or hair type or walk or Uh, limp as it were, or ailment, but they're rather looking for somebody to fulfill a certain set of roles related to redemption. They are looking for the salvation of God, and there's a particular kind of person exemplified in Moses as one of the prophets, though there's many more. There's Elijah, and John the Baptist fulfills that sort of motif. But here, I want to call your attention to another place in the catechism uh, in regard to the prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet, he executes his role or his office by revealing to us God's word and uh, by his spirit, and he does it for our salvation. It specifically says he reveals to us By his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. So a man of God, as it's called in the Old Testament, reveals 
that which is an inspired word. It's not just like, oh, I think God is leading me this way or that way. We're led all the time in those functions. We have wisdom to think about God's word and you think, I think God's calling me to do X, Y, or Z. It's not that kind of word. It's the uh, akin to the inspired word of God, a, a word that is not in... Uh, occurring to us in the same way today. A word of God which is so weighty and authoritative to disobey it is like disobeying the scriptures. This is the kind of word that doesn't come to us today, yet comes to the prophet anointed by the Holy Spirit to infallibly speak that word to his audience. So before Isaiah's written uh, by Baruch, in, and dictated by Isaiah, it is first given to the prophet and he'll see even visions and things of the like and then give the word of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh and then he'll declare the word of the Lord. This is the kind of prophet that they were looking for. One who in, uh, to disobey him is to disobey the Lord himself. So the audience And looking for a prophet is looking for someone to speak the very words of God's salvation and do it in a special way. Because this prophet, like Moses, is a standout. He is going to be unlike other prophets. There are many prophets in Israel, some uh, which we don't even know their names. But the ones that we do are are all, all pale in comparison to Moses. He is a specifically prominent one. And we see this in the life of Jesus in various different ways. So how does, how does Jesus fulfill this? What does it look like? First of all, we see it in Jesus's teaching ministry. You remember Sermon on the Mount. He, he ascends the Mount of God, just like Moses ascends Mount Sinai. And Moses on Mount Sinai receives the law and delivers that law to God's people. Jesus, likewise, when ascending the mountain, delivering the most famous sermon ever, delivers God's law to the people. He delivers that which is a law for the kingdom. And he does so in order to condemn the misuse of the hypocrites. Really, they were lawless ones. And so Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and he'll quote, Uh, one of the Ten Commandments and say, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he faithfully, just as Moses does in Deuteronomy, expounds on what the law means and gives specific application to that law, such that the hypocrites, the Pharisees at the time, couldn't escape. Uh, They used the law in such a way that caused them to not be guilty of it, though yet they were in every regard, and yet This is not how Jesus expounds. He gives the law and its true sense, its true meaning, so that we might obey it. He's a faithful Moses in his teaching ministry. Secondly, he is also seen often prophesying the future. I don't have to enumerate these, but you'll know many times he prophesied his very own death. The most iconic version or or Seen is when uh, Peter in one hand is commended. Who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And then Jesus says, I'm going to die and be rejected and crucified, but I'll rise on the third day. And, <laughs> and Peter won't have it. And then gets called Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your ways on the things of your mind on the things of man. And so in this sense, Jesus prophesied over and over again his death and his resurrection. He also prophesied things like the destruction of the temple, not one stone left upon another, which happened within a generation, 40, a little less than 40 years in 70 AD. All of it was fallen. If you go read Josephus too, that's exactly how he describes it. Not one stone left upon another. It's like, Jesus knew what the future is going to be or something like that. He was a faithful prophet. <clears throat> and he even says things like John fifteen fifteen, which he says, All that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
This is what the prophet does. He hears a specific concrete word from God for the people and he delivers it faithfully. So Jesus in his teaching ministry, in his prophetic ministry, uh, highlight how he is like Moses. Second of all, we, we step back one verse from 37 to 36 and notice what it says here, because this is included. Moses is not giving, uh, and even Stephen's not giving an exhaustive way in which Jesus is like Moses. But you'll be uh, struck by this verse. That's struck by this verse that says, "This man, that is Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years." Now, Jesus was a miracle worker like the world had never seen. Moses did some amazing things, and even people who they are coming against in Joshua's day are scared of the people of Israel because some of the things that God did through Moses. But Jesus, unlike any other, gave sight to the blind, made the lame walk, raised the dead, and did so in such a way that John can say at the end of his gospel, if I wrote down everything Jesus did and said, the, all the books in all the world could not contain what he has done. In a period of three years, he was a miracle worker of all miracle workers, such that nothing has been done like it before him, and nothing no matter what Bethel wants to say, it will be done like it afterward. He is the supernatural miracle worker that is like Moses performing signs and wonders in his ministry. If you want to go back, this is what was explained in, in Acts chapter 2 as well. Now lastly, and here's where I want to focus most of our time today, verse 35. I'm excited to do this. Read it here with me. It says, this Moses whom you rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? So this is how they rejected him. Now, here's the statement that we receive from, uh, from Stephen. This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. I want to focus on this ruler and redeemer. And again, I want to do this backwards. First, to talk about redeemer. We could expound on both of these things more, but a redeemer is one who liberates, who, who sets free. And often it's specifically by the payment of a price. So sometimes this word is translated ransom. So there is a liberation, a setting free by the payment of a price. If you think about Moses and redemption and Jesus and redemption, it is extremely fitting to call them both by that name. If we think back to the Exodus and to Moses, there are many rich elements in the Passover in that section right before the last plague of the destruction of the firstborn as well as what happens after. I'm just going to summarize one way in which we see this redeemer theme which comes to Christ. So I'm I'm drawing a line between the that which has happened there with Moses at at the forefront that leads to what Jesus is going to do later. So first, uh, the final plague was that God would destroy all the firstborn in the land. And if the Jews did not do this particular thing, that, that is, they did not redeem their firstborn sons, they would perish as well. They were going to be under the condemnation and under the plague that God was bringing about. However, by God's grace, he gave a, a way of redeeming their firstborn sons so that he did not fall in the judgment like the Egyptians. How was that? Well, he would have to sacrifice a lamb and take that lamb and paint it on the wood doorposts of their house. And when the destroyer, or as it says in our text today in the Psalms, a company of destroyers came by, they would pass over. That is, judgment would not fall on that one. 
And they wouldn't be swept away, rather they would be saved. They would be redeemed from the sin that they had committed. All all the firstborn sons deserved the same thing, yet God made a provision at that time. And so after that, the exodus happens, and then what they are to do year by year is nonetheless similar. Now, that was a one-time occurrence where they had to paint the doorposts and then were delivered out. But every year, they were to redeem the firstborn son. They are to remember the Lord this way. It was proclaimed to them that the firstborn belongs to the Lord, both, both of the beast and of every male child. But you don't kill the male child, you redeem it with a price. And it doesn't say in Exodus. I think it's the payment. You see it occur in a number of other places. <clears throat> you redeem with the payment of a price. And that's how you would memorialize this Passover, that God redeemed his people, specifically the firstborn son, with blood. And we are going to commemorate that with the payment of a value, whether of silver or gold or whatever, according to the shekel of the temple at the time. <clears throat> and that is the commemoration of God's saving from judgment. That's what, that's what redemption is. It's a, a, an amazing picture that gets us ready for Christ. And there's so many elements we could go into there. But that is redemption. That's what people understood it to be. So it makes total sense when Christ comes on the scene as Redeemer. And specifically, he comes to redeem as King. This is one of the other ways. There's prophet. There's priest, and you could think of redemption in that way. Redemption in the mind of the Israelites would have included blood sacrifice. That's what it was. The Passover included the blood on the, on the lintel and the doorposts. In the same way, that will become very shortly after the Exodus, a whole sacrificial system whereby the people can appease God. And so We won't develop that today, but there's prophet, there's priest, and the last one that we'll focus on that comes up, which in our text is God sent him both as ruler or or king. King. He's not only a redeemer, but most assuredly the reformed confessions and the catechism which we read this morning are correct in asserting that Christ, his office of redeemer is one of a king. Now, there is a rulership motif that is, that is being drawn on. You'll notice that he already had gone through Joseph before Moses, and he talks about Joseph in the same language. Moses is even more exaggerated, as it were, as a ruler, as a king, and that will turn into the kings of Israel and David specifically. There is a, a straight line even from Adam to Joseph to Moses to the King David and Solomon. This this is a theme that develops throughout Scripture. And specifically, it is what's being pulled on here, ruler. They were expecting not only a prophet, but a ruler. So what I want to do is spend some extra time showing you, this is the excursus part, This is the place where we're going to, if you're thinking about your smartphone and you want to delve into something deeper, you click on it and it expands. That's what we're doing in terms of the office of a king. We're going to expand what it means. And we want to look at it from both New Testament and Old Testament, the assertion that Christ is king. Let me just remind you why we would do this, because as it is here, It is not the point that Stephen draws out, but Stephen dies before he finishes the sermon. (laughs) He hasn't made his point all the way to Jesus. He doesn't get there, so I'm making it for him. It's supposed to be implied, especially since he's doing some of the similar things that he has done before. And as in narrative, a lot of times you'll, you'll remember, just as another proof to why we would do this in a sermon, is... Gamaliel, you remember just a, a chapter, two, two chapters ago now, Gamaliel is the spokesperson for God. He's a respected teacher of the law, and he asked the question, 
which Luke intends for him uh, not to be in a question, really, but an assertion. Uh, if we, you oppose these people and they're empowered by God, you, you better watch out lest you be fighting against God. And that is actually the assertion of Luke. In the same way, it is the assertion of Luke, although it's here in a theme it's here in what Moses looked like and Joseph looked like, and we're going to see Joshua looked like, um, and David looks like. All of these things point forward to the fact that had he not been destroyed, had he not been killed, the assertion is, well, they, they were always opposing the rulers of Israel. They were always crucifying those who were uh, uh even metaphorically speaking, they were always opposing and resisting the Redeemer who was lifted up to be their ruler. Uh, this was not written just so he could talk about Moses. This was not written and this was not preached just so he could talk about Joseph or, or David or any of those others. It is intended to be brought all the way from, from them to what he, what he is clearly picturing, this type, which is only and finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we expand on this pattern because it's clear that the actual intention of Luke is for us to be able to make this parallel, make this step. <clears throat> so I'm arguing it's what Luke is doing, not what Pastor Fred is uh, being clever about. Um, one of the central aspects that is missed in our day is, is a fullness of the gospel. There is a sort of obscuring of the gospel in our day because there's a missing of the reality that is taught here as well as in Acts. And that is the reality of Christ's kingship. A lot of people don't fully understand the gospel because they miss Christ's kingship. There's no doubt that Luke, by the Holy Spirit, makes sure that he wants us to understand Jesus's kingly reign. That is a central part of the gospel message. What is the gospel? Well, simply it means the good news. Well, what is the good news? Well, Jesus came preaching the good news, but in Matthew and Mark and in the gospels, he comes preaching what the Gospels call the gospel of the kingdom. He preaches the gospel of God's rule in the earth through his anointed one, his Christ. That is, God's kingdom comes to earth in Christ Jesus, and God extends his rule through the Messiah. So he says, comes preaching in the wilderness, uh, John and Jesus have the same message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or as uh, you know, some translations interpret, and I think rightly, it's, it's in your midst. It's right here. You can touch it. You can enter into it. The kingdom has come to earth. So let me give you two places, and here's where we'll go to a couple other texts to expand First, I want you to go back in Acts to chapter 2 and verse 36. Chapter 2 and verse 36. And while you get there, I'm going <clears> to <throat> give myself a water break. And then I want to summarize Peter's sermon because it's a long one. But it's not a complex one once you think about it a little bit. Uh, in verse 36 is his conclusion, and we'll read it in a second, <clears throat> but he just says that Jesus has been made Lord in Christ. That's, that's the conclusion there. But the summary of his sermon is, really, you could do it with a few texts. Joel 2, Psalm 19, or Psalm 16, excuse me, not Psalm 19, Psalm, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. That's, that's what he communicates. He communicates the messages of Psalm 16, Psalm 110, and Joel chapter 2. And the, the, it's all in answer to the question like, why are these people speaking in our languages? They're all Jews. They're talking in our languages. What is this tongues thing about? 
Uh, there's a miracle going on and they're praising God and, and these people are, are prophesying in even the more generic way of speaking the mighty works of God in foreign languages that others understand because <clears throat> they're speaking actual languages. So that's where Joel 2 comes in. But in order to explain that, he doesn't go there. He, he starts there, but he explains why this is happening in light of what Jesus has fulfilled, namely Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. So he says that by, here's the summary of the sermon, that by Christ's resurrection, according to Psalm 16, he has now been made Lord of all, Psalm 110. And that has been through his resurrection. He has been made Lord of all, and now he has sat at David's throne at the right hand of God in heaven. That's Psalm 110. He, he connects those two. Psalm 16, if you read it, there's a death, there's a resurrection, and then there's an entrance into God's glory. And then Psalm 110 picks up that and says, now at the right hand, Jesus sits down. And we see this is the actual fulfillment. Jesus, in chapter 1, he's back from the dead. He had fulfilled Psalm 16, but he had not ascended into heaven. That's what he does in the opening lines. He sends into heaven, and then he, Psalm 110, sits at the right hand of God. He takes his seat on the throne so that in uh, preaching this sermon, the way that Peter goes about explaining is that uh, David's tomb is with us to this day, but he was a prophet. And he looked forward to the time when God would fulfill his oath. That is to set his descendant on his throne. Verse 34. You can go to verse 34 here. For David did not ascend into the heavens. He didn't sit on that throne. This is not about him. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, he has said, my Lord, he has sat at the right hand and he has made him Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here it is. The spirit has been poured out. Well, why? Well, that is because The good news is this one Jesus has defeated sin and death by his resurrection and he has ascended to the right hand of God to be the righteous king of life. That's why he can send out the spirit because he's fulfilled Psalm 16 and 110. But this is a problem for them. This is a huge problem for them because he ends his sermon, his gospel presentation with you crucified. This, this one who's poured out the spirit, this one who has conquered death, this one who has the power of eternal life, this one who is at the right hand in heaven on David's throne, you crucified him. <laughs> what do you do with that? So they ask, well, what do we do? And so the answer is very simply, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is the first time it comes up in this sermon. And here's what I want to say. The gospel in our day has been truncated. It's been reduced to be mainly and only about personal forgiveness That's a truncation of the gospel. (laughs) No doubt that is central, central, central. We call it the message of the cross. It's absolutely vital. No doubt about it. It's part of the preaching of the Reformation. We're saved by faith alone. Personal forgiveness. That is, God doesn't count our sins against us, but he counts God's righteousness in Christ to us. Central. I'm reformed. <laughs> that's, that's essential. But it's still, if that's all you say, is a great truncation of the gospel. That's not all the reformers said. That's not all the Puritans said. That's not all the Bible says. No, the Bible also says, and Peter says, even 
before getting to forgiveness of sins. Even before getting that, he says what is central is that Christ has the crown of heaven. He sits on the throne in heaven and it all belongs to Jesus. And because of that fact, because he's loosed the pains of death in his resurrection, because he's ascended on high and received the Holy Spirit and poured it out upon his church, because of that, therefore, that kind of king can give forgiveness. Because he's that kind of Lord. Notice, if you go back in the sermon to the quotation in Joel, Verse 21, this is Joel 2, which he quotes, but it's at the very end, the magnificent day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in those days, the days that he said are upon them then, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The name of the Lord. You think about that for a second. It is because he is the Lord that he can be called upon for personal forgiveness. One thing precedes the other, and this is greatly misunderstood in our day. It's precisely because he's the Lord that he can grant forgiveness. So if we are to preach the gospel without Christ's kingship, we miss a central aspect of the gospel. How many people, how many of you really, how many times have I preached the gospel and all it is, is is escaping the sinfulness of this world and going to heaven. That's not the fullness of the gospel. <laughs> no, it's not. It is Christ reigns as the king of forgiveness and all who turn to him can be forgiven. <laughs> it is that he is Lord over all things. And that's what we want to focus on. So <clears throat> in this connection, uh, I was struck this week by... Uh, text that I know well, at least the last part, I I want you to turn to Ephesians 1, 13 through 23 is what we'll read. I'm I'm only going to focus on uh, 21 and following, but I want you to have the context because it's fascinating. One, One thing that I found out this week, I noticed is that Paul, really after talking about our union with Christ and us being elect in him, and us being adopted in time and, and given every spiritual blessing and all things coming to their fullness and uh, being uh, the plan for the fullness of time that is to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. After saying all of that, then he actually does exactly the same thing that Peter does. He connects the operation of the Spirit with Christ's lordship. So, so that you, you can't have any of the spirit in the way that we have it, the seal of our, our promise, the guarantee in the particular way that it comes, uh, unless you have Christ seated on his throne. And you might be tempted in reading Acts to go, well, he is Lord and he's sitting on, on David's throne. You, you might think of that and go, well, that's specifically in relation to Israel. So I wanted to go and spread out to a Gentile context and show how he expands the kingship of Christ to include much more than Israel. <clears throat> so read with me, uh, read along with me in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, this is in Christ, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus In your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Listen from here on very closely. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in, in all ways or in all things. It's exhaustive. <laughs> that is, Christ by his spirit fills his body. That is the church. That's how we are made the body of Christ. You are united to Jesus. That is not physically. You haven't been attached to him in that way, but you've actually said in your union with Christ, uh, Romans 6 is a good place to go if you want to look at this more. You have been actually died with Christ and you have been resurrected with Christ. You were crucified with Christ, even spiritually undergoing what he went through in a supernatural and quite mysterious kind of way. You have been present with Christ even in the plan of God and the blessing. But, but all of that flowed to you. Uh, Ephesians 1, if you want a summary. Ephesians 1, it begins with all blessings in the heavenly places are in Christ. But that extends to eternity past and eternity future. But it falls on you at a particular time. At one time, you were a rebel. You were dead in your sin. You were following the devil. You were a child of wrath. But God raised you from the dead and gave you spiritual life. And here, what we are seeing is our current position, as it were. Or we are seeing the current thing that is being prayed for the saints. That is, you have been enlightened. You know who Christ is, but he prays that there would be a, a further expansion of, of your knowledge. There would be a further understanding of, of how to apply, uh, that is wisdom, spiritual wisdom, in how to apply this truth to your reality. Okay, that's where he's going. That's what his prayer's about. But he expands and says who Jesus Christ is. And that's what I want to focus on because he expands on it as king. Verse 21 says this. Look at in verse 21, we read, well, he has been raised from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule. Uh, our Arminian friends like to say all means all and all is all means. Something like that. All really means all here. And so that you would really know that all means all, he expands it to encompass every different kind of way you could think about authority. Whether spiritual demonic authorities, whether you think um, Michael and the archangel, uh, Michael the archangel, or or whoever you might have, whether rulers or kings or anybody, he says all rule. What I mean, I'll expand on that for you. I mean all authority. I mean all power. I mean every name that is named. <laughs> that is, if Caesar's called Lord, there's another Lord, and his name's Christ Jesus. He is the ruler of all things. No type of rulership is left out. So, to make this practical for you, that means every head of state, if you're to meet Joe Biden, you should pay him respect to the emperor, uh, is due honor. It, every emperor that you're to ever bow to, or all men, head of their households, whom you sit in their home and live according to their rules while you're there. Every bishop or elder or 
presbytery or whoever in the church context that you submit to, and every individual that you ever shake hands with, everyone is under Christ's authority. He alone is sovereign over each and every area, sphere, individual in life. That's what Paul's saying. Everyone. Though Hebrews and Jesus' parables prepare us for the long process whereby everything gets brought into personal subjection to him, such that you can hear uh, Jesus teaching that the kingdom of God and his, that is his rule and reign uh, is like leaven that it was worked through the whole dough. At, at some point, it's flat and it rises over the course of, we're 2,000 years in, it's rising over the course of that period of time and it'll keep rising. And you might think of Jesus' other parable. It's a mustard seed that grows into a tree so that it's big enough that all the birds of the heavens can nest in its branches. We know this intuitively, even beyond those parables, because you were in mind in God's plan, though none of our parents existed, at least the ones that we can trace ourselves back to 2,000 years ago. You probably don't know your genealogy that far back. I know that I'm connected to Adam and so all are you. But however, 2,000 years ago, you were part of Christ's reign. All authority got to you 2,000 years later and literally on the other side of the globe. I don't know if you've been to Israel, but it takes a long time to get there because it's all the way over there. And the gospel, like uh, a vine that's crawling throughout the whole earth, has expanded such that there are 120 in the upper room. And now there's, although I don't believe all these people are, are Christians who proclaim to be, there's a billion people on the planet. Uh, if we exclude the Catholics, a billion people that consider themselves Protestant. It's a billion people who name the name of Christ And that's not to make any assertion about who they really are. However, this shows that the reign of Christ has has filled the earth and will continue to do so. But that reign becomes personal at some point in time in your life. It's like a seed that germinates and and turns into, Lord willing, a, a tree of blessing and shade for your household. It becomes a place where you you begin to to that seed grows and you begin to fruit in your vocation as it were you send out roots into the marketplace in the public square you you start to take root there the the gospel of the kingdom expands in you we see paul emphasizes not only that he has all rule over everybody over all times exhaustively, but he also says in every age, you notice in verse 21, not only in this age, they might say, yeah, Christ is enthroned in this age or something like that. Um, And I take that to be an age already past. However, if you take it as now, which a lot of people do that too, take it as this age, that means Christ is ruling over this age. And not only this age, but the one to come. That is the future new heavens, new earth. That age in real time has actually already started. That age doesn't ever end. It only increases. So what is the substantiation for? Or let let me say it this way. Just put it in other words. Jesus, once he's inaugurated into office. He sits on the throne. He will never be deposed, though many may attempt to assail him, like Nazi Germany or whoever. There may be secularism on the rise in our day for a time, yet it will fall like a lumbering giant and it will be destroyed under the feet of Christ. His reign will not be taken over by any puny little guy who is not king of kings and lord of lords. What is the basis for this? Well, 
I'll do the thing from Ephesians right here in just a minute. But you all remember the famous Christmas verse, don't you? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, one of my favorite ones. And I just want you to notice the timing as we're comparing these things to two together. Because <clears throat> a lot of people place the kingdom as somewhere in the future. Uh, though that is true, that's not Paul's emphasis plainly in Ephesians. And why would it be? Because the prophet famously said, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now listen, because we've already heard the interpretation of Paul and Peter in this matter. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Well, you notice that it's not when he comes back to reign after the second coming. You notice that? The government's placed upon his shoulders after he's born, right? He, he, he does this work at a particular time. And, and the time that's told us is on the throne of David. Well, it's already been interpreted for us. Praise the Lord. He's reigning on the throne now, as we heard. Therefore, what our expectation should be is that there is an ever increase of his kingdom in the earth. There's no decrease. The kingdom will not diminish and grow or diminish and, and wither. It will grow and it'll grow and it'll grow. It'll be fits and starts. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched bread or a plant or sometimes limbs die, have to be cut and pruned. And sometimes you have to do other sorts of things. Uh, and bread doesn't all rise the same. Sometimes it arises a little faster over here and then catches up on the other side. Uh, it will look like your sanctification. Shaky <laughs> at times. Yet the increase will always be there. And that is the case over the last 2,000 years, why would we expect for it to make a downturn at some point here in the future? It's not in keeping with the interpretation of the scriptures. But Paul in Ephesians wants to give us a picture um, and substantiate it. He has made this connection with head and body. So Christ is above all rule and authority and at the same time, he has been, as it says, he has put all things under his feet. But what's above his feet? Well, he's head, his feet's down here, and you're the body. So there's a beautiful picture here. Uh, if I ever get to Acts chapter 749, that's just in the text right after. This is just a side note for you. I, have, I, I looked all over the internet. There, I can't find anybody preaching one or two sermons on Acts chapter 7. You, you have a privilege of hearing like six sermons on Acts chapter 7. <laughs> Maybe seven. That's, I don't know that that's ever been done. But um, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> Verse 22 and 23, you have a picture. And this picture actually just comes from Isaiah 66. It'll be quoted. The fullness of the earth is the Lord's, but the, the earth is known as God's footstool. He, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And you see where he's going here. We already talked about the temple at length. Uh, so we know where Stephen's going. You have become the temple. <clears throat> but in another picture, the, the footstool of God is the earth. That is he reigns over the earth from heaven. That's the picture. It's one of authority. So in expanding the picture, he says, not only is Christ's authority over it, but actually you're a part of his body. And under your feet is the whole world. That picture is amazing. Christ is the head sitting in heaven. You're his body sitting in heaven. I should remind you of Colossians 3, what also Paul says there. 
you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You, chapter 2 in Ephesians, are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it is the case that you are not considered apart from your head. You are the body and who fills you? That is Christ. How? By his spirit. I, I, this connection, I hope, is, is becoming crystal clear. Christ is the head. The church is his body. So that even elsewhere, to the Romans at the very end. This is a fascinating text. Christ will soon crush Satan under your feet. Not his feet. Your feet. Because how does this work? Well, the whole point of the Spirit is that you would carry on the work of Christ. You actually have been given his ministry. Uh, I stand right now in the role of prophet only because Christ is a prophet and he's anointed me to preach the word. So all you are to, you know, First Peter chapter 2, declare the glories of Christ who delivered you out of darkness and declare his marvelous light. He is working through his church by the Spirit in a unique and even greater way than the saints in the Old Testament. His anointing has fallen onto you and you have been brought into a new humanity and all things are under your feet. Let me just throw out one verse. You already reign with Christ. So what's the third one? Uh, before I get lose myself here and go into many other scriptures. Third one, third basis for why he would say this and give this picture that um, all things. Well, he quotes... Uh, in Psalm 8, Psalm 8, 6, you should look up where that comes across in Hebrews and in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to leave that to your own study. But what you should know is Psalm 8 is really important. If you, if you don't know it, the simple of it is it's a reflection on man who is given dominion over all things. Hebrews specifically says that this dominion has been given to Christ. All things have been put under his feet, though we don't see such as yet. It, it takes time. All things will be brought under his feet in the fullness of, but you are connected with your head, and under your head has been put all things. That is, the meaning of this is quite obvious. What has happened to Adam? He was given a dominion, and that dominion was lost. He dropped the ball. He no longer had dominion. And in, in a real sense, he gave it over to the devil, such that Christ, when he's encountering the devil in the wilderness, he says that all the, all the nations of the earth ask, worship me, and I'll give it to you. That is, dominion was lost to our enemy. Yet that dominion has been squarely placed on the shoulders of Christ. That dominion that is God's rule in the earth has been reconstituted, reinstituted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are part of his body. That means not only his dominion, that is Adam's dominion regained, is, is Christ, but it's yours. He rules in heaven. He's not here doing it on the earth. And that's exactly the whole point, is that you are a member of Christ's body by the Spirit in order to do kingdom work, in order to do dominion work, to assert the crown rights of Jesus, as it's been said. Now, notice I did not say church work. That's good. You should do that too. Um, but I did not say church work. You need to not conflate. Many people really mess this up today. People conflate and think kingdom of God equals church. 
That's not correct. The, the, the temple equals the church. <laughs> the temple equals the church. Uh, but the kingdom of God expands beyond the special place of God's dwelling. The kingdom of God, if you think about it this way, the kingdom encompasses the whole society. The, the temple is just an aspect of that. Although these things are a little bit mixed up at the end of Revelation because of things that we can't go into now. Um, and yet we should make a distinction. If you think of a society, there's a cathedral in the center uh, where God meets with the people and blesses them. And then the kingdom is where they go out from there into their homes, into the place of business, into the hospitals, into the schoolhouse and into every place in society where you may go. And you do work in those places in the name of Christ Jesus. You do work in those places specifically, not for your glory, but for his. You do it for the kingdom. Now the kingdom is manifest, is present here. We get a particular taste of it that you don't actually get elsewhere. And so there's a special emphasis on the liturgy of the church, yes, but the emphasis does not stop there. The emphasis goes to when you sit on city council or goes when you're in the political sphere, wherever it may be. It, it goes into you when you practice law. That is kingdom work. It's not isolated to the church. That's called churchianity. But the Bible and the gospel is not only about the church. It's about the world. It's about reasserting the dominion of Christ over all things. He is its authority, is he not? Amen, he is. And so what we do is we worship in a particular way and God is present to us. And we always get to hear new parts of his word, which come to us as his uh, uh, the reformers and, and many would consider preaching to be the word of God insofar of it's, as it's faithful, even though it's not directly being quoted. It is the word of God to us. So when you receive it, you receive all faithful words as the word of God and you are changed by it. You live by it. And then you have the benediction that is God's blessing pronounced on you. I started that some time ago, but you go out with God's blessing to do kingdom work. This is your rest day. This is your rest day, right? Christ rests on the Sabbath. This is your Christian Sabbath, and you go out to work. You go out to bring God's blessing so that, Lord willing, uh, it would flow as far as the curse is found as we sing in that great gospel Christmas song. So the gospel of the kingdom, let me summarize and bring to the application that I want to do. The gospel of the kingdom is summarized very simply. Christ is Lord and he is Lord over that. Where, whatever you're looking at, whatever you see, whatever you hear, your and my message, the gospel is Christ is Lord over that. That could be your family members. That could be some random guy on the street. That could be over Pope Frankie. That could be over anybody. Christ is Lord over that. And nothing is excluded. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. That is the gospel message. So the Christian worldview says everything belongs to Jesus. And we must apply that truth to everything, to politics, to games in the schoolyard, everything. It's been said this way, we are to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every sphere of life. In homes, that is for men to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and lead them in family worship nightly. That is to start Christian businesses and schools which are explicitly dedicated to Christ and allegiance to him. 
using the law and the gospel for the rules of your governing, the rules of your business. And I'm not saying that this is a a thing necessarily you could do overnight. You might be in a a place of work where um, doing this kind of application, though you should seek to do it over time, might get you... um, uh, resignate might get you papers that say we are politely asking you to leave. So this might take a process. Don't don't be dumb about living in a, a hostile world. However, <clears throat> you and I need to do the same thing. It's not. It's really not enough for Christians to um, go and practice. I'm going to use a lawyer. I don't know any lawyers here. Uh, it, it is not enough for a lawyer to have a prayer time at lunch with fellow Christians. That's good. Probably should do that. But in the long run, what Christ is Lord over my law practice means is doing law in a Christian way. Not just in integrity, but like basing your practices and your arguments off scripture explicitly. And I'll let you... Slid down it. It's still working pretty good. I'll let you work that out. I want to make one more application. Why is it that the world seems, in the West, seems to be running headlong into darkness? I'll tell you one reason it's not. It's not because Christ isn't Lord right now. And it's, it's not because the devil's just getting the better of him right now. The devil is not the God of this world. Uh, Jesus is. Jesus is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He has deposed all rule and authority. He has taken, he has triumphed over them in his death, Colossians 1. This is the case. Why is our world then getting darker in the West? Although it is difficult to say why there is a blindness to it, One of the major problems for us in our time in this country is that Christians aren't wholly submitted to the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. That's not, that's a societal problem and that's our problem in this church. That's our problem everywhere. The reason our world is getting darker in the West is because we are not fully submitted to the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. That's why the world gets dark. It's because the church lets the weeds grow in the garden. You're supposed to pluck them out with me. Uh, we are supposed to be the, the, the weed killer, as it were, uh, or the weed converter. Uh, weeds get turned into wheat in the kingdom, and it's a wonderful thing. And our job is to, <clears throat> in everywhere in Scripture, to submit to Christ's reign. I'm going to quote Dr. Joe Boot from a, a recent interview. If you want to watch these, these are great. If you want to read the book um, with me, it's a pretty big one. It's 700 pages. It's called The Mission of God, but it's fantastic. Here's his quote. I'm going to try, it was in an interview format and it was really fitting. I'm going to try to do it even in the way he does it. <clears throat> and he's, uh, he's got a cool, uh, Uh, European accent, so I'm not going to sound as cool as him, but he says, we as evangelicals are very good at talking about the formal authority of God's word or its infallibility, but we don't really believe in its material authority. We we don't believe, uh, we don't believe in its application. You try it sometimes. Try talking to a Christian about how we bring God's word to bear on this cultural problem or that political challenge, this issue in the law, that problem in education, in terms of a Christian world and life view grounded in the scriptures. And people think, no, 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 no. We've got to be neutral. That's our problem. 
No such neutral world sphere person exists. You're for me or you're against me, Christ says. You either gather or you scatter. There's no neutral ground. You're either godly or you're pagan. You're living by the spirit or by the flesh. There is Christ or chaos. And you see what's out there? I'm on Twitter now. It's bad out there. When you don't choose to follow the Lord in any area as a Christian, listen to this. This is, this is true. I, I don't have time to give you many experiences of this, but this is just the application of, of that word. There's no neutral ground. All of it's Christ, and that's our gospel. When you don't choose to follow the Lord in any area or are not specifically governed by the word and living by faith in the word in action, you are governed and are living by an ideology that does not come from God. We all have them. I can name a bunch of them. And so often I find Christians will agree with me. Yes, that's what the Bible says. But here's my laundry list of why this other idea, not from Scripture, is what I'm going to do. It's everywhere. (laughs) It's sad. (laughs) It hurts my heart because it is our common experience. The Bible is sufficient for all of life. And when we choose to live by something else, you must understand we are putting our faith in man's words, man's ideas, and we live by the flesh. Church, we must be relentless in our commitment to God's word. It's hard enough uh, to to be committed to it and fall short in all the ways that we do but to have functionally in our lives where we pick and choose what we want to obey because some of those other stuff are really hard in our culture is is a scary place to be. You do not want to be there. So if you don't know how the word is brought to bear in a particular Context. Well, that's why you have shepherds. Sometimes we don't know. I've been asked this week or a couple weeks ago, maybe even longer than that, about Bitcoin. I don't know nothing about Bitcoin. However, um, it is my job to shepherd that particular individual in our congregation because there's a Christian way to to do that. Uh, Maybe it is the most Christian thing to do in light of where our currency is at. I don't know, but I need to figure it out. And that is our job as a church is to figure out how all of life is lived under the rule and reign of Christ Jesus because it's his. Let let us start acting like that is true. That's my whole sermon today. And I know I went long, but 